0: Good morning, Cibola Creek. I am so excited you're here today. There's a saying about uh, saving the best for last. Well, our last teacher before I return home next Sunday is Mr. Wyatt Merchant. I love the Wyatt Merchant story. Wyatt started attending Cibola Creek when he was in high school. And he made some important decisions about the place of Christ and his church would have in his life while he was a teenager And he was baptized here at Cibola Creek a few years ago. In fact, the day that Wyatt was baptized, his father, his mother, and grandfather all came to visit our church for the first time. And they have since become a consistent part of our church family ever since. Just a couple of years ago, Wyatt had the privilege of baptizing his mom right here in this auditorium. After graduating from high school, Wyatt served as an intern in our student ministry, Then he became a part-time member of our staff team in our student ministry. And he now currently serves on our staff team in our communications department, where he has been a tremendous help with making our church accessible to a growing online audience. Wyatt also helps me host a weekly podcast where he and I have delightful conversations about many topics related to life and faith and culture, and what it means to be a Christian in a changing world. Uh, Wyatt has a brilliant mind, and he has a wonderful heart. It's been a privilege to mentor him as a young man with a heart for ministry. Today is his very first sermon in the big room, and he and I have worked together on his message, and I'm completely confident he's going to do a great job. Now, he's a bit nervous, as you might imagine, so please give him your biggest smile and sincerest interest in what he has to say. Wyatt, Remember to talk slowly, and please don't burn the place down. Leave me something to come home to. You got this, buddy. I'm praying for you right now. Good
1: morning. How are we doing today? Good? Don't get too excited. I haven't started talking yet. Thank you for the kind introduction, Mr. Wilson. You know, I never thought that I would say this, but I'm actually starting to kind of miss that guy. Yeah, actually starting to kind of miss that guy. Now, if you're like me in that, uh, just wait until I'm done, and then you'll be very glad that he's coming back next week. So also, I wanted to thank Miss Kristen Burford. She helped me a lot uh, in figuring out what I wanted to share today, and formulating it, and making it to where I'm not just mumbling and bumbling around, um, though I may still do that. But she helped me a lot, and so I just want to thank you, Kristen, for that. And also, if any of you dislike anything I have to say today, or if I am completely incoherent, you know who to talk to. <laughs> so on that note, let's, let's, let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for today. Thank you for bringing everybody in this room, every single person. God, I, I, uh, I ask you and your Holy Spirit to fill this place God, that you would be felt and known, that your word would be spoken, that you help me to get out of your way so that you may speak, that open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say. In your son's name, that we pray. Amen. Amen. So, as Paul mentioned, uh, we do a podcast called Sybil Creek Conversations every week. And so, what that looks like is that every Thursday, Paul comes over to my house and we record in my living room. And a side note, Some of you may think, because I think he's gone to great lengths to make people believe this, that he doesn't like cats. This is false. He's a closeted cat lover. Sorry, Paul. But he is the first, I guess, being to get attention when he comes into our house is me and my wife's cat Apollo. Um sorry, had to call you out, Paul. But, anyways, we record every Thursday. And I love those conversations. And this is a big part of why. I've started to miss him, is that every Thursday we have an hour to two hour long conversation. And they're just an honest conversation. Now I'll send him a topic or the question that we're going to cover that uh, episode so he can ruminate on it as he does. Um, but beyond that, we do very little prep and I don't edit anything. Maybe there's times where I should, but I don't. Um, and and so we just have honest conversations. and. If you've listened to any of that podcast, you may have heard me discuss a problem that both I have faced and am dealing with, and a problem that I think a lot of us in the church are, particularly my generation, though I think it probably goes back a few because we got it from somewhere. But it's a problem, and I think, I think a good way of formulating that problem is that we have a misunderstanding of the character of God. We kind of have a fundamental misunderstanding of, of who he is. In other words, I think that we have forgotten who we're dealing with. I think we've forgotten who we're dealing with. And that problem is pertinent to the conversation that, we're having, that we've are we been having all summer long in this series that is called Become Like Jesus. Because if you want to become like someone, then you have to understand what that someone is like. So if we want to become like Jesus, we have to know what Jesus is like. And... <clears throat> That's where the problem comes in because our understanding of someone, how we see them, uh, it, it changes or it affects how we interact with them. Does that make sense? So, if I if I see someone, you know, how I understand someone to be is going to change how much love I give them, how much grace I show them, how I treat them, how casual I am with them, how much respect, how much reverence I show them. How we understand someone to be changes how we interact with them and it changes our relationship and that is where the problem comes in our understanding to sermons our response to them and that's where the problem comes in because if we have an incorrect view of who someone is or if we have say a skewed or unbalanced understanding of who that person is then our relationship with them will suffer it will be incorrect or not right does it make sense? All right. Good. So take my generation, for, for example. One of the ways this problem is caused is by looking at only one attribute of God's character. Or one attribute of anyone's character, but one attribute of God's character. That We're taking the totality of who God is and we're looking at only one attribute. And the attribute that my generation has chosen is love is love. God is love. If you don't believe me, look at our songs, look at our sermons. Just a general conversation that Christians around my age have is that God is love. Our social media, it's full of it. And on its face, that at all is not a bad thing at all. God is love. But whenever you take the totality of who God is, and you make, it, make him small. You only focus on one attribute. But then that attribute, we've also done something else to, And that is, we've taken our own experience of what love is and our cultural idea of what love is, and we've slapped that on to who God is and how he loves. So instead of taking God's love as he has revealed it to be, we slap on our own ideas of who that is. In, in other words, we make God and his love in our, we, we make it in our own image. We make it how we would like it to be. And whenever we do this, our relationship with him suffers. You start to hear phrases like, well, if God is love, well, then he would never ask me to stop doing blank. If God is love, he'd never say that I couldn't be Blank. If God is love, and if we slap our own cultural and experience and therapeutic way of looking at it, it's all about me, our relationship with him will suffer. And as a result of that, my generation takes God's love for granted. I think in general, in general, my generation probably takes God's love for granted. We feel entitled to it. Why? Because I'm me. Of course God loves me right? Of course, a guy that I listened to, uh, his name's Nathan Finocchio. He, he said it in a funny way. He said that we've made God out to be a lovesick boyfriend, <laughs> a lovesick boyfriend. No matter how poorly that dude is treated, he's accepted. He's taking her back, right? And she knows it, and she knows it, and she takes advantage, right? I won't tell you which one of those, I, if I was or wasn't that, but we know that person, and we can get an idea of that, right? I'm married now, so it's fine. doesn't matter, Um. But we've made God out to be this lovesick boyfriend. We take his love for granted, and we feel entitled to it. Again, we've forgotten who we're dealing with. Now, you may be thinking, why God is love? The scriptures tell us so. And you're right, they do. And he is. There's two scriptures specifically. First John 4.8, whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. 1 John 4:16 And so we know and rely on the love God has for us because God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Now, <clears throat> there's a reason I chose those two scriptures, a very specific reason. And that reason is those are the only two scriptures in all of the Bible that specifically say that God is love. Now, there are a lot of scriptures in the entire Bible is a story about God's great love for humanity and reconciling us back to him. This is true. But whenever it comes to his character and, and verses that attribute love to his character, these are the only two. I think, you can fact check me. There's not that many, point is. Holiness, on the other hand, is over 400. There's over 400. Talk about an imbalance a skewed understanding of who God is. Now, why have we done this? I think it's because love is a lot easier to deal with than holiness. Love's a lot more comfortable than holiness. And we'll get into a little bit of that. But there's real consequences to this imbalance. There's real consequences. As I was saying. If we have an incorrect view of someone, then our relationship with them will suffer because we are not treating them as they are. And there's real consequences, and I've outlined three that I've personally experienced and I've noticed. Number one is that we just flat out have an inaccurate understanding of who God is, right? So we're not relating to him as he is. If you've had a relationship with anyone ever, you know that could be problematic. And whenever God becomes our culturally redefined idea of love—oh, sorry, wrong place. But again, we're not interacting with him as he is. It's God on our terms— and the result of that is we have little to no reverence of him. Little to no reverence. The girl, the, the boy, the, the lovesick boyfriend, no one reveres the lovesick boyfriend. That's why he's a lovesick boyfriend, right? We lose, we lose a reverence, a respect, as Proverbs says, a fear of God. This is the beginning of wisdom. We lose that. So that's number one. Number two, second consequence, that we become indifferent or ignorant of our sin, to indifferent or ignorant to our sin. Again, whenever God becomes love, we can justify, or we can make excuses for, become tolerant of, or even attempt to normalize our sin. Whatever we don't want to give up, we'll just say, well, God loves me anyways, And the third, oh, a good way of understanding this, actually, you may have heard it said, well, God loves you exactly how you are. God loves you exactly how you are. And that is very pretty sentiment. And it's not even necessarily wrong. But I think a better way of understanding it is that God loves you despite exactly how you are. Despite exactly how you are. Because God is holy, and we're sinful. And the third consequence of having a misunderstood vision of God, or understanding of him, is that the good news just doesn't seem so good. If we become entitled to God's love, if we think we deserve it, well, yeah, I mean, it's good, but like, I deserve it, of course. We take it for granted. Good news stops seeming so good. Whenever we don't understand and we've forgotten or we ignore the effect that our sin has in a relationship with a holy God, the good news stops seeming so good. If we forget how hopeless we were before Christ, the good news stops seeming so good. And on top of that, your heart and your love and our heart for the lost world, for people far from God, that also diminishes. Well, God loves everyone. There goes evangelism. The good news stops seeming so good. God is most certainly love, but He's also holy. And these two must be kept in balance. You, whenever we look at God, He's very different. Where we can be maybe more of one thing than the other, God is all of one thing and all of another, He's total. It's hard to understand. That's God for you. But <laughs> but he He cannot be one more of one thing than the other. Does that make sense? And so today I want us to begin the conversation, dip our toes into a conversation about what it means whenever we say that God is holy. Now, I'm probably the least qualified person to talk about such a topic, but here we are. <clears throat> so bear with me. But now before Paul left... Uh, He actually kind of dove into this topic a little bit, and um, he tackled it in the idea of, like, what does it mean for us to be holy? Whenever we're called to be holy, what does that mean? What is he he calling us to? And I'm going to be, again, kind of looking at a different angle, and that is, what does it mean that God is holy? And then what does that mean? What implications does that have for us and how we relate to him? Sound good? Nice. Enthusiastic. Now I know why Paul's always like, all right, gang, do you get it? <laughs> oh, boy. So what does it mean that God is holy? What are we saying about him? I found uh, a definition that I really like, and there's a lot of them, and there's all kinds of different ideas, but we're going to go with this today. Um, and it's by a professor named Wayne Grudem. And he said, God's holiness means that he's separated from sin, devoted to His own honor and, gl- and, and devoted to his own honor and glory. And then he goes on to say that God is qualitatively other in his quality. He's completely other. The difference between God's being and ours is more than the difference between the sun and a candle. So let's break that up just a little bit because it's a lot. But number one, separated from sin. God is entirely without sin. He's morally perfect. He cannot sin. He is without sin. He's not, there is no evil. The Bible talks a lot about this in terms of light and darkness, darkness being evil or sin and light being the things of God, what is good, what is righteous and holy. And in 1 John 1, 5 through 6, it says, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. Separated from sin. Number two, he's devoted to his own honor and glory. This means that all all of God's actions are going to bring him glory and honor. He will not act outside of that. He will not do anything that does not bring him glory or does not bring him honor. And definitely things that bring him dishonor, he does not do. That's very different from us and it's hard to imagine because we act in ways all the time that do not bring us honor or glory. Particularly if other people knew about them for those things that we do in the dark. And that's not even to mention the honor or glory that it brings to other people. Everything God does, he's completely devoted to his own honor and glory. And thirdly, qualitatively other. Just means that God's in a category all by himself in a category all by himself. He can't be completely understood. And so that's something that we always are going to be wrestling with, right? He's trying to understand God. But he's in a category all by himself. And whenever we try to put him into a box that's nice and squeaky clean and has a label that just says love, even though that idea of love has been influenced by, cult- by the culture, or our own experiences, or sentimentality, or the therapeutic nature of just how we think nowadays— We do him a dishonor, and we don't know who we're dealing with. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, if you're anything like me, it's kind of hard to understand, and that's Okay. It's so, okay. We, we, we can't be expected to try to understand or, or know God fully. But we can know him as he revealed himself. And, and a really helpful way of um, understanding how we're supposed to interact with him is to look to see how the people in the scriptures reacted whenever they realized they were in the presence of the holy. How did they react whenever they were in the presence of God and they realized it for the first time? So we're going to take a look at a passage from Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet, the Old Testament, and he has a vision. And it says this, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robes filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy. Not love, love, love. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then Isaiah, this is his reaction. Woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinful man. And live among people of unclean lips. Sinful people. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Woe to me, I am ruined. Other passages and other translations say it. I'm undone. I'm undone. So he immediately recognizes that he's a sinful man. And now you, you might be thinking, well, why? that's the Old Testament God, New Testament, because we've created this false dichotomy between the two. Um, Let's take a look at New Testament. Let's take a look at Jesus specifically. In Luke 5, 7 through 8, This is whenever Simon Peter meets Jesus for the first time. And he's out fishing, and he's been fishing all night. And Jesus comes along, and he says, Hey, have you tried the other side? And Peter's like, Bro, seriously? And so he does it anyways, because he's like, Fine, I'll respect this dude. He's clearly like a rabbi or something. And he does it, and this is where it picks up. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. So upon seeing this mir- this miracle, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at, at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. The last example, the disciples and Jesus were crossing a body of water, and a storm came upon them. And the disciples are like freaking out. Jesus is, you know, sleeping in the other I like guess part of the boat and they go over there and they're like, Hey, are you going to do anything? We're, we're drowning here. Also, I'm adding my own. This is not exactly how it went. Adding my own. If you didn't notice he wasn't referring to Peter wasn't referring to Jesus as bro. But, um, but then he go, but, but the disciples wake up Jesus and they, and this is, and this is Jesus's reaction. He got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And the wind died down. The wind wind died down. Say that three times fast. And it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And the disciples' reaction was that they were terrified. And they asked each other, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The language used to describe the reaction to Jesus was stronger I forgot to include it exactly right there. But it was stronger than it was to the actual storm. That's a lot different than a lovesick boyfriend type of God. That's a lot different than the type of God that you casually, you know, go get coffee with. Or that you're just driving chit chatting to. And there's a time and a place for all that. I'm not saying that any of that is bad. We're supposed to pray without ceasing. All of that is good, but we're dealing with God still. We're dealing with God. And that's a view, this is a view of God we don't get very often. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't get it very often. And what do, we, what do we do with that? How do we balance that, especially with his love? How do we balance this This God that upon seeing them, everybody just falls to their knees and says, woe to me, or please go away from me. I'm a sinful man, or terror. How do we balance that? Well, unsurprisingly, Jesus gave us some amazing examples, and we're going to take a look at two of how he balances this love and his holiness. The first of which is John 8, 2 through 11. So at dawn, Jesus he appeared again. This is uh, he appeared again in the temple courts. This story is about the woman caught in adultery. To give context, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts. For all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, "Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say?" They were saying this. Uh, they were asking this question and using it as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and continued to write on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the oldest ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, this was in a culture, in a time, where you could probably say that holiness was seen as way more important, right? Where it was kind of, that was the imbalance. Lo- love was way down here and holiness was way up here. Grace and mercy was, was held kind of low. They were much more legalistic. Our culture, on the other hand, wants it to stop here. They don't want like, pretend like this part isn't here. Then neither do I condemn you. Well, who is, who is Jesus to tell me to not do this? Right? We don't know what's going on in this woman's life. You know how hard she's had it. Jesus upsets both parties whenever he shows her the love of not stoning her, of saving her, not condemning her, and then also saying, go now and leave your life of sin. He's holy, and he wants a relationship with this woman. But in order for that to happen, she has to leave her life of sin. Second example of how Jesus displayed the balance between love and holiness, these two seemingly paradoxical ideas, is actually his crucifixion. Jesus took the place of us. That was supposed to be our cross. That was the debt that we were supposed to pay and the punishment that we were supposed to undergo. But Jesus took that. His love drove him to the cross his love drove him to the cross that his holiness required. In order for us to have a relationship with him, our sin had to be paid for, had to be wiped away, we had to be made right, righteous in the sight of the Lord, and we couldn't do that ourselves. His love took the place and did something that we could not do, which was to live up to the holiness that's required. God cannot be in a relationship with sin. Jesus does love the sinner. He hung out with gamblers, tax collectors, prostitutes, you name it. He probably came across one or two. But it was them that went away changed, not Christ. It was the thief that went away changed, not Jesus. It was the prostitute that went away changed, not Jesus. It was the sinner that went away changed, not Jesus. They did not rewrite who Christ is. They changed. Jesus shows us the balance of his holiness and his love, and neither is compromised at the expense of the other. Our ability and our willingness to understand that balance is crucial for our relationship with him, for the problems that I mentioned earlier. But if we can, if we can start to really thirst after seeing God who he is, for, wanting, for not wanting a small God, for, for understanding his holiness... And those problems start to get resolved. The problems I mentioned earlier. The first problem resolved is that we, we understand who God is accurately and as he revealed himself. As he revealed himself. That's our duty. Our duty is to know him as he revealed himself, not as we would like him to be. And it's our responsibility to do the work, to study, to learn, to come to church and be in community, to figure out who he is. At the end of the day, it's each one of our responsibilities. The relationship that we have with God is our responsibility. It's what we say of Christ and who he is. John 4:23 through 24. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. True worshipers, that means that God has a way that he wants us to interact with him, how he wants us to worship him, how he wants us to know him. And his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. Must is a strong word. It means we need to get this right. When we understand understand better that God is holy, we do just that. The second problem resolved is that we start to see ourselves and our sin more clearly. As all of those examples that I showed earlier, um, that that we looked at earlier, described, whenever they knew that they were in the presence of God, they were immediately aware of how unholy they were. And that's uncomfortable. They all said, like, woe to me, or please go away. Or they were in terror. It is uncomfortable. And I think, again, I think that's why we probably have... Pinpoint focused on just love and the wrong idea of it, at that. It's uncomfortable, but it's necessary. We can't repent from something that we're unwilling to acknowledge. We can't turn to Christ with something that we are unwilling to acknowledge or that we don't even know is there. God's holiness reveals our sinfulness to us. As uncomfortable it is, that is love. That is love just as it is holy. And the third problem resolved is that we realize just how good the good news is. Whenever we realize that we're sinful and we realize just how holy he is, he is, then we realize how hopeless we were before Christ. We realize how hopeless we were in our sin before Jesus. Ephesians 2, 1-5 says, as for you, you are, We're dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We were by nature deserving of wrath. We were not by nature deserving of the love of God. Only because he has said that we are, is that so? But our sin has made it to where that is not the case. We were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. A holy God has saved us by grace, his grace, his mercy for us because he knows the outcome without the work of Christ. So he came and he did what we could not do for ourselves. And like I mentioned earlier, our understanding of the good news not only affects our relationship with God, but it affects how we see a lost and broken world. Our willingness, the urgency, the fire that we have to share our faith and to live it out in such a way that the world notices it whenever we know that he's holy, whenever we know that by, that by nature we're deserving of wrath without Christ, that urgency will be instilled. That fire in us will be fill, uh, uh, inflamed. But simply knowing that God is holy in our head, it's not going to immediately change how we interact with him. It takes some intentional practices and I don't know exactly how best to do that, but I've come up with some that I think have worked for me. The first is learning and studying of the word. I know it's not a silver bullet for how we're supposed to you know, interact with God or understand his holiness, but it takes intentionality and time meditating his, in, on his word and in his scriptures and understanding who he is and how he revealed himself not how we would like him to be. And then number two is times of reverence and prayer and worship. Now, again, like I said, this isn't something that you can always do, because most of our time throughout the day, throughout the week, we're doing stuff. And we need to be able to talk to God in such a way that is a little bit more casual, right? We can pray without ceasing. But is there any time in your week, and maybe if there isn't, consider— there's no time in your week where you're showing God, where you're interacting with God like he's God. It will help us to understand the holiness that he, that, that, that he is. Interacting with God like he's God. Not just a casual friend, but like he's God. Now, I may have been all over the place today, and I might not have made a whole lot of sense, but if that's the case, then maybe just get this last part. Everything in our world is trying to make God smaller than he is. Everything in our world is trying to make God smaller than he is. And the evil in our sinful nature is also trying to make God smaller than he is. It does not want a large and holy God. But that is not the God we serve. We follow a holy God who in his love for us offered us a way to salvation through Jesus Christ. And he also offers us the power through his Holy Spirit to overcome our sin and to overcome the world. So refuse to serve a small God. Refuse to serve a small God. As Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this time. Father, I ask that you help us to understand who you are, who you really are. Help us to shed any Preconceived notion of who you are, or any ideas that we have about your love or your holiness or your grace. God, help us to see you as you desire to be seen, as you desire to be known, as you've revealed yourself in the scriptures. Help us to know your holiness. And in those moments, whenever we're in your presence and in the holiness and it's uncomfortable, God, help us to stay, help us to deal with our sin, help us to repent and to follow you and to bask and to live our life in the saving grace and love of your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Have a great week, everybody.